Welcome, my friends. You are listening to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Today, we're going to have a conversation with the Reverend Amy Daffler Moe, who has just moved to Little Rock as the Dean and Rector of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral. It's a reunion for me because Amy and I were in seminary together, so it is good to rekindle an old friendship. Welcome, Amy. Thank you, Mary. And I have to say, not only am I thrilled to just be having this conversation with you, but at the risk of sounding like super cheesy, it really feels like just a dream to be able to have this conversation and know that we're diocesan colleagues. I've always admired you from afar, so it's nice to be near. Well, it is really fun to be together in the same city. I'm looking forward to being able to be around each other again and work together. That's exciting. So back in the 2000s, many years ago, (laughs) when Amy and I were in seminary, I think that she and I kind of stood out among the student body. There were pretty equal numbers of men and women and a range of ages, but if memory serves, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that there were only three of us women who were also in our 20s at that time. So I was trying to think who they were, and I think it's the two of us, and then Lisa Sanudo was a year ahead of me, right? and then Bonnie was kind of in both of our classes. But I will say, when I mentioned that to my husband, Jared, the other day, did you remember you? And he said, oh yeah, absolutely. He's like, she and Lisa are a lot alike. I always got them confused. I guess my point is there was few enough of us that he was able to connect that there weren't. Like I said, we kind of stood out. (laughs) It didn't seem like it should be an unusual thing, a young adult woman pursuing a graduate degree toward her chosen profession. And yet the reality was that at least in seminary, we were sort of unusual. I think that that's still true. You know, how often I've gotten confused for other young female clergy because people just sort of put us all in one category and then there's not (laughs) a lot of like, oh, that person works there and does this. Like, how confusing is it? Because you're a brunette and I'm a blonde, but yet people (laughs) often think we're the same person. You're the blonde, I'm the brunette, but we're like the same height and stature. (laughs) So we must be the same person. (laughs) Right. So Amy, tell us a little bit about how you got there. How did God work in your life to get you to seminary at such a young age? It's such a fun story to tell. I think I often break it down into about three parts. The first part is, is I'm an only child and my parents would send me to spend the summers with my grandparents. I hated camp as a kid, hated it. And so I went to grandparent camp is what we called it. When I was with my mom's parents in Ohio, I did a lot of art. My grandmother was an artist, played a lot of card games. When I went to Florida with my dad's parents, my grandpa Joe was very involved in his church, Gloria Day Lutheran Church on Anna Maria Island. We just spent a lot of time there. You know, looking back on it as a grown up, I see that he was showing me ministry. He was never ordained. He was an electrician. That was his career. He was showing me ministry and preparing me for who he hoped I would become, you know, not ordained just as a human, someone who serves their church and serves other people because that's who Christ calls us to be. The other piece that I think became really important is I always felt most comfortable at church. I never really felt like I fit in at school. Maybe most people don't feel like they fit in at school. I always felt like I fit in at church, that that was my place, whether it was singing in the choir or as an acolyte or just being there on a Sunday morning or even in the middle of the week. And so 
it just made sense for me that if this was who I was being called to become as my grandfather was teaching me and it was a place where I fit in that why wouldn't I spend all my time there? (laughs) You could pay to do that. That sounds awesome. And then when I was about eight years old, I went to a Lutheran ordination and I was like, still remember, you know, the music and the clothing and thinking like, I don't know what this guy's doing, but I am all in. And I think that was like the first seed of ordination, you know, that was planted. I had the privilege when I decided to go through the ordination process in college of moving back to my home congregation and going through the process in a diocese where I had essentially grown up and was well known. I think not too dissimilar from your story. I met my husband and decided to take another year to work before we went to seminary under the assumption we were going to get married, which we did. And the bishop, Bishop Charles Jenkins from Louisiana at the time said, well, would you ever think about going and working at a school? And so I, through a long series of events, I ended up being the interim lower school chaplain and I loved it. And it became the time that really, I feel like it put the call on this solid ground because I could do everything for those students, those children, except the sacraments. And it was like this hunger and this hole welled up inside of ministry for me. And I remember like saying that to Bishop Jenkins and he being like, you got it, you're ready, off you go. And that was in many ways, I think, putting on that last piece that had been missing verbally that I could actually put words to, that may be the first plant to grow from that seed. Our stories do have some things in common. I also was really quite young when I first experienced a call. I was reluctant at first. I was 15 when I first like knew that God was calling me to be a priest. And I didn't really like that message, honestly. <laughs> My father was a priest, and so I kind of knew what it was about. And as much as I honor and respect my father, I didn't think that was what I wanted for myself. I saw this sort of unglamorous side of the clergy life. But I guess I also grew up in this household where we believed in vocation. It was something we talked about. We believed that God calls us to a purpose in our lives. I was also fortunate because my parents never suggested to me that God would have different ideas about what women and men would be called to do. Because I was young when I first had that calling experience by college, I was ready to seriously discern. And like you, I had some opportunities to serve as a youth minister and a chaplain. And those experiences really confirmed for me that this was what God made me to do. And I knew that my deepest joy, my satisfaction in life would come by responding to this crazy calling. Interestingly for me, the age thing was kind of an issue or age plus gender, I suppose, in a way that really surprised me. My bishop had been really encouraging me to pursue this calling from the time I was about 18. And in my home diocese, women were regularly ordained. And this bishop was especially interested in ordaining more young people. So I felt really supported up until I graduated and got married. When I got married right after college, the bishop changed his tune then. (laughs) So it really threw me when he suggested that I find another bishop to support me. And I guess I was just naive at the time, but I really had no clue why his support had been suddenly withdrawn. And I didn't really figure it out until some time later when a professor at the seminary who had experience and wisdom 
explained to me that my bishop didn't want a young woman to be also a mother and a priest. I mean, it was like the bishop was happy to have a female and happy to have a young person, but not if the female was also going to be a mother. That just never occurred to me that that would be a problem, but it was. Regardless, because of the support of lots of people and God's guidance, I found my way to seminary, and I hope that I've proven that bishop's concerns to be false, that sharing the motherhood and the priestly vocation. But it's true that I I was nine months pregnant by the time I finished seminary, probably his worst nightmare. (laughs) I became a mother just weeks after my first ordination. For me, those vocations of motherhood and priesthood have always been combined. You also, Amy, are a mother and a wife. Talk to me about how you balance and blend those roles. Such an interesting question. I was listening to your story and I was thinking, I held myself most accountable to trying to balance this call to being married and having a family and what it would mean to be a priest. I wrestled with that again and again and again. And I credit my husband to bringing me to a more rational place. We had not been dating very long and I had this experience of being a leader in church and being alone. No one in my family was present for something that I was leading in worship and feeling very lonely, which is the only child I had wrestled with my whole life and continue to wrestle with. And so I went to go visit him that evening afterwards, and I was sort of in my own head about that. And I knew I loved him and that he loved me. But I also knew that we'd only been dating like a month. You know, you don't want to talk about marriage with somebody calling <laughs> dating a month. He finally got me to talk about what I was thinking about. And I said, well, you know, I just can't figure out who would want to be married to a priest. And he said, well, why would you want to be married to anybody who wouldn't be married to a priest? And that's sort of how Jared comes at the world. It seems so rational when he said it, sort of taking it out and just looking at it as just a fact. And so I think that's how I've come to be able to, whatever balance is, find this way through motherhood and the priesthood or motherhood and vocation or the vocations of motherhood and priesthood is that we have really together wrestled with what our different vocations are as parents in our work. And he has always, I felt like, held me accountable to not letting the priesthood being my full self, but also not letting motherhood be my full self. That instead I have a self that is fully who it is because I'm able to be a mom and be a priest. We don't have any balance in our life. <laughs> we lead, a, I feel like, a very unstructured life and household. What I do feel like we have come to, or what guides us, what our guidepost is, if you will, is a sense of common core values that we as adults have and have come to over 21 years of marriage. And then the privilege of being able to make decisions about our family based on what's important to us, which a lot of people don't have. But I'm really grateful that that we can, if we feel like we're called to move somewhere in the middle of a pandemic, we... <laughs> We have all we need to be able to do that. And that's a real blessing. I like that idea of the common core values and how that works in a family. God bless Jared. 
And God bless Stephen. Stephen, too, for me, he was the first person when I was a teenager who I told that I wanted to be a priest. I thought I was called to be a priest. And he affirmed that in me and has supported me every day since. And he also keeps me grounded when I need to be grounded. I think that all of us, all people wear more than one hat in life. And so we've all got to find our core values, as you say. Whenever it feels like I have bitten off more than I can chew, I like to go back to the vows that I've taken in my life. So first I was baptized and my parents entered me into that covenant in which I promised my life to God and Christ. And then many years later, I took a marriage vow and committed myself to love, honor, and cherish Stephen. And then I was ordained. So I took vows of obedience and discipline so that I may love and serve the people among whom I work. And then finally, I baptized my own children and promised them that I would raise them in the life of Christ. When I really like need to find my priorities and make tough decisions, I try to focus on those. Maybe we can call those our core values, but those promises that I've made to God are really the promises that order my life, that make up who I am. And it helps me to realize that there are usually some things that I can let go of because my email usually doesn't have anything to do with the promises I made to God. <laughs> so I can let that go. <laughs> what you said makes a real impression on me because I think it really does put a very important scriptural perspective on how we come to our core common values, if you will. I mean, there's wonderful self-help people out there or social workers and sociologists, you know, Brene Brown comes to mind, who help us do that work of coming to healthy boundaries and knowing our authentic self and living to our authentic self. And listening to you talk about covenant is such a good reminder to me about how we can go back to our source and remember that God is God and we are not. And so we can return again and again to God who helps us grow and become more and more who we're being called to be. And so all these things in our lives are carrying us to that next moment, whatever it might be, and that God is present in all of it. It means right that it's okay that I don't have control because there's something greater than myself at stake. Mm just accepted this new call that has uprooted your family and moved you to a new place and a new community. But I think that what makes that possible is being rooted in God and knowing that God has a purpose for you and we can trust God. Yeah, I was reflecting today with some good friends about two things that happened last week. One was I went to a diocesan clergy meeting I guess it was actually two weeks ago. We were talking about something I really care about, racial reconciliation. And it was like I had stumbled into some brain trust in the middle of the Diocese of Arkansas that I had been dreaming about and praying for for years. 
I remember driving home from the cathedral that day and thinking, I can't believe I ever imagined that I would not accept this call. Because if I had not accepted that call, I would not have sat in on that conversation and learned the things I learned today. And thanks be to God that it doesn't matter if I'd been there or not, that there would be people who are doing that work. It was just felt such like such a I don't even know how to, I'm sure there's a German word for it, right? (laughs) (laughs) With too many syllables. (laughs) And then I had that same feeling last week. One of my children, I I pray for my children all the time. One of the things I pray for is that God will bring them really good friends. One of my children has really, in this move, unexpectedly had some really wonderful things happen for them in this move. Again, I had this feeling of, I have been praying for this for years. And now I feel like I'm experiencing God's response. And so all those moments that felt empty and just like this waiting, this yearning for where is God in this moment, now for that to be born and I'm able to actually see it, it's something I always hope I'll get better at, that I'll always be able to like, not just have hindsight, but in the moment go, oh, this is what I've been waiting for and praying for long. I don't know if I'm getting any better at it or not. I don't suppose that really matters. I think for me, what matters is to recognize that, okay, well, now I'm in it and now here we are. And so for that to raise my level of hope about God's activity in the world. And I want to remind you that you are probably also the answer to a lot of people's prayers in accepting your call to the cathedral. And you are the first female (laughs) dean of Trinity Cathedral. I don't know about you, but part of me gets a little tired of hearing that first female (laughs) stuff. It's like, man, (laughs) it's about time. (laughs) And yet it's still part of our reality. You're going to bring something new to the cathedral that they haven't had before. I remember when I was newly ordained, I attended what we called curate camp. The new priests were required to go to these monthly retreats for continuing education. I was the only one with a nursing infant, (laughs) so Drew came along (laughs) to curate camp every month. And Bishop Dina Harrison was often with us. She once asked me what I thought it meant to be a female priest. And my response was something like, I really never think about being a female priest. I just think about being a priest. And I think that all I really want to do is be a good priest. And the look on her face really surprised me because when I said that, she got this look that I interpreted to be like pride. I don't mean to say that it was pride in me. I felt like it was a moment for her when she realized that the women in her generation who had to fight so much harder for their place in the church, that their work was paying off. Because of them, I didn't have to think about being a female priest, quote unquote. I could simply think about being a faithful priest. And I feel very fortunate to be one of the subsequent generation of women who now get to serve alongside men and women and all kinds of people in this wonderful ministry. It feels like this theme of reconciling work is part of what we do in ministry. And I know that it's something that you're passionate about. Talk to us about what God is calling you to now. I was listening. Amy Coney Barrett, you know, was just nominated for the Supreme Court. And I read something originally that said something like, you know, she's one of the first women we have who can model or who is modeling living fully into their vocation and also living fully into being a mother. 
And I have to be honest and say, I was like, hold on. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's true. Yeah, sure. She's getting a lot of publicity for it. And I don't hold that against any of us, any of us who are out there doing this hard work of our vocations as mothers and whatever else it is we're being called to do are paving the way for the generation that comes after us. And I remember thinking at general convention, at the last general convention, that the young women clergy who are coming up after us, they're just amazing. They understand the reconciling work of being equals, fully equals in a totally different way than I experienced it or understood it based on where, you know, I was coming from, especially the Catholic New Orleans world where a pregnant priest was just, you know, crazy. That was crazy. And so I think, you know, now it's such a norm that we would have young female clergy that they're set free to do the next thing. And that is part of God's reconciling work to say, we need to get past getting caught up on someone's gender or sexuality or their race and see how God's kingdom is enacted through them and their vocation. Which I've not been quiet about that one of the reasons I feel called to be here at the cathedral is because racial reconciliation, it's we're long past due on the reconciliation work that needs to happen amongst races. For me, growing up in the South, the primary experience of that is our Black brothers and sisters in Christ and the way that the church as well as our culture has subjugated and devalued them. I feel that most, especially with children. I have spent most of my ministry working with children and having that privilege to be in ministry with them. And so I feel like we have to do this work for our children. The thought that any young black female child believes that they are devalued based on the color of their skin or their gender or both to me is abhorrent and so not the gospel. It's time. We're well past due on bringing God's reconciling truth to that experience. You articulated that so well. The mission of the church, as you know, is reconciliation. That's the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) And it happens in many different forms. But always the question before us is how do we reconcile ourselves to God and how do we reconcile to one another in love? And in a way, I think that you and I are here because of the reconciling work that our predecessors have done around gender equality, thanks be to God. And it's just that there's still more work to do. We turn the page and we find that there are people who have been subjugated, who have been left out, who have been devalued. And because God loves every one of us, we can't let that go on. We have to speak up for one another, and we have to build the bridges. Whatever work that takes, we're in it for the long haul. to get distracted by things that are not really all that important or not as important as reconciliation, but I think that you're being led to do something really important here. But it's not easy. How will you pursue racial reconciliation? What are the best strategies? I have no idea what the best strategies are. I think some of our clergy brothers and sisters right here in the Diocese of Arkansas has some ideas about that, and I'm excited Mm -hmm. to learn from Mm -hmm. them. 
I also just really believe that we are beloved and chosen by God. And so God gives us all that we need to do the work that's set before us in this day, whatever today might be. My daughter would say, this isn't a real interview with me or a real conversation with me. If I didn't also say, and because of all that, I believe we can do hard things, right? That God gives us all we need to do the hard things of today, even if the hard thing today is to sit still and not do anything. So what I am hoping to, you know, I have like lots of big dreams and visions about what I hope the cathedral will do in the next several decades. And I hope I'm here for those decades. I don't have any intention of going anywhere else. I would love to see us. And one of the reasons why I felt called to come here is because I'd love to see us use our property as a place where people from the neighborhood here, and hopefully from all over Little Rock, but I'd love to focus on our neighbors here mm -hmm. in the Quabaw Quarter. How can we use our property to benefit the families and the community that's right here? Maybe that's an after-school program. Maybe that's a grocery store with dignity for people who need discount groceries. Maybe it's a place where social workers are able to come and meet with clients to help them with addiction or financial planning or bridge out of poverty, whatever that might be. So that's one dream I have. Another dream that I have is being able to amplify the voices that do know the best strategies for reconciliation and to give them a place right here in Arkansas where they can be amplified. That's everyone in my mind from Brian Stevenson to Sybil Hampton and everywhere in between. Creating a place where we have authentic conversation, where we really listen to one another and then prayerfully discern how we move forward and how we build bridges in our community. I think we can be a place where that kind of truth and reconciliation work can happen. And I think it can happen best if we're engaged in the community around us and also engaged in the larger church and the culture at large. I hope we can be a place where all of those voices can engage with one another. And then the last thing, and I don't know how to voice this, is the church is getting smaller and smaller. So what a privilege that we have this like huge campus and the ability to have multiple people on our staff. So I hope our staff is a place where voices of the most vulnerable are amplified in our community. And I hope we become a place there where people really see the diversity of our community represented. And by our community, I mean like the Diocese of Arkansas, the state of Arkansas, but also like beyond those borders. What does it mean to be the church? What does the church look like? And being really aware of how we are a model for that. You have lots of potential there in that community. And the wonderful thing about it is that as you engage in that work, it will spread. It will move other individuals and groups of people and congregations to do the same, I believe. This past weekend, I preached about absurdity. I've read that the word absurd comes from the Latin for deaf, as in not hearing. And I found that such an interesting connection that what happens when we don't listen to each other is absurdity. A lot of the way that we treat one another gets to be pretty absurd. The violence in our communities gets to be quite absurd. And it seems like that absurdity comes from our inability to listen to the needs of one another. I'm glad to hear you say that listening is a part of how you will discern that path of reconciliation. 
If we can all do that in our individual lives, make a better effort to listen, then I can have hope. We don't think of listening as being a vulnerable act can be such a moment of vulnerability. If I listen to my spouse or partner, if I listen to my children, anyone that I have a relationship with, not with the sense of, well, how am I going to react or what am I going to say next? But that sense of what are they telling me about themselves that they want me to know? And how can I accept them and love them for what they're telling me? It's been a practice that I know I've had continue to work on, but has deepened every relationship I have. Even this sounds so ridiculous to say out loud, but even like with the Kroger checkout person, being able to like really listen to them <laughs> has just made the experience of being a Kroger better. <laughs> it's yes. not that we're having this like intimate conversation over groceries. It's just that, oh, it sounds like you're having a bad day. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for being here. I'm glad you're here. It means I get to get my groceries, you know. Well, just a simple acknowledgement that we're surrounded by other human beings. They're not just objects that are sort of in our way, (laughs) you know, either helpful or in our way, but they're people with complexities. And when I stop long enough to recognize all the human beings around me, it humbles me and allows me to actually enjoy my interactions better. So I'd like to conclude today by praying for you and for your new ministry here at Trinity Cathedral in Little Rock. And I'll invite our listeners also to pray for you in this new place. Let us pray. Ever-living God, strengthen and sustain Amy, that with patience and understanding she may love and care for your people, and grant that together they may follow Jesus Christ, offering to you their gifts and talents, through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amy, thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. As I say in this podcast often, I think that our joy is complete. Thanks to all of our listeners out there. And please do listen again next week because our J-O-Y is not complete without you. is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Bano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer. Mm-hmm.